Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You know, this ministry year, we've been emphasizing different aspects of our church um, and been laying before you uh, our mission, our values, and our marks. Our ministry year goes from the beginning of September to the end of May. So we're coming to the end of the ministry year. And all through this year, there's been a, a theme and uh, some major messages and series of messages around these idea of, of our mission, our values, and our marks. Our mission, right? That's the work that God wants us doing as a church. And our values are the convictions that are most important to us as a church. And then our marks are the questions that we ask ourselves to assess the health of our church and of the discipleship of our church. And we started uh, this ministry year um, in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And, and we spent some time in those, uh, cha those chapters looking at those churches that were in original cities that were the target of the book of Revelation. And those, ch those churches in those cities, we looked at their context and we looked at the similarities that were taking place in their location, in their context, and we drew comparisons to what is happening in our context. And by doing that, we talked about how our church, in order to to meet the needs of our city had to have a mission that was specific. And we introduced to you this idea of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. The mission of our church is that right there, to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. It's fitting that if we started the ministry year in the beginning of Revelation, this final sermon series of the ministry year would start and it would take place at the end of the book of Revelation. And so this morning we are in chapter 21 and in these verses we find a statement by God that our church's elders and a leadership believe should shape the vision of our church for many years to come. So let's start right there. We want to jump right in with this basic expression that we think is going to be formative for us as a church because it puts us square within the work that God is doing. Uh, let's read verse 5 together out loud. Let's read it. Ready? And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. 
As we were praying through the vision and where God wanted us to go, this verse really came to the forefront for us as a leadership team. The renewing work of God. This is the emphasis of these opening verses in chapter 21. And the interesting thing about these first six, seven, eight verses in chapter 21 is it provides the framework or the outline for the rest of chapter 21 and chapter 22. So all the concepts you see introduced in these first opening verses are then unpacked and expanded upon systematically through the rest of these two chapters and it brings you to the end of the Bible. Now, I I hesitate to ever just jump right into a verse when it's in the middle of something and we haven't set context. Church, it's always important that we set context of a verse, both the context immediately and where it's at, the verses before and after, but also the context within the book itself. If we don't do this, you end up cherry-picking verses, and you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, okay? And so we don't want to do that. So let's just take a couple of moments and remember the context. The the author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John, and he is writing to a group of churches, right, that is uh, experiencing persecution. Either they have recently, or they certainly will in the near future. And all of these churches are facing this persecution from the Roman Empire. John is writing in order to encourage them to persevere and to withstand this persecution, to be strong and courageous, and to make their stand with Jesus and not turn their back on him. He he chooses a genre that is very different. You know, there's different genres of literature in the Bible. There's poetry, and there's narrative, and there's historical accounts. But he chooses the genre of apocalyptic There's only a couple of Bibles, Daniel, uh, books in the Bible, Daniel and Revelation, that are written in this genre. And, And what that means is he wrote in language that was deliberately difficult to understand if you were not part of the inner group. He's using symbols and language and all kinds of allusions and metaphors and analogies that that meant something to the original audience. But if you were, for example, a Roman centurion and you got a copy, you wouldn't understand what he's talking about. Well, guess what? 2,000 years later, Christians sometimes have a hard time understanding what he's talking about, right? Because some of this understanding has been lost. But the basic message of the book of Revelation is very clear. It is God saying, I am sovereign over everything that takes place in this world, church. My hand is on this world, and events that are happening in this world, no matter how trying they are, no matter how troubling they are, they are perfectly under my control. Things are happening exactly as I want them to happen, and I am going to bring this entire world to a conclusion, and that conclusion means that every human being who ever lives will stand before God in judgment, and he will either decree eternal damnation or eternal blessing and reward of eternity with him. And that's what we read in the verses right before chapter 21, that scene of where God judges every human being who has ever lived, and he decrees their eternal destiny. So with that context, as this vision It's coming to a close in the book of Revelation. God, once again, he's encouraging his people to remember that he's in charge, that he is large, and he is making all things new. Remember what I'm up to, church. Don't lose heart. 
Don't put your trust in political figures or religious figures or anything like that. Put your trust in me because I am in control of this world. I am making all things new. What an expression. In a book that has had all kinds of scenes that are horrific to consider, yet in the midst of those horrific scenes, God says, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm making all things new. That expression, let's, let's draw out some applications. Let's dig deeper into it. Let's break it down. First of all, by making all things new, God is fulfilling promises that he made to his people. In verse 1, we see then, that word then, of course, on the, on the heels of the, the judgment of chapter 20. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. When John wrote this book, he's writing in the common Greek language of his day. It was the language of the Mediterranean world and the Roman empire and, and everyone basically knew this language. In the, in the Greek language of that day, there were two different words that meant new that we translate with just our one word, new, right? One word, <coughs> excuse me, is noos. Noos means like fresh, young, something that hasn't existed before. Uh, the other word is kenos, and kenos is the word he's using here. It's not new in the sense of something that has never existed before. It's new in the sense that what is old has become obsolete and it's being replaced by something that is superior, by something that is better in quality. The idea here is transformation. <clears throat> it's renewal. The, the transformation and renewal where the new grows out of the old. See the difference? Okay, not new that's never existed, new that grows out of the old. And what he's saying here is based upon promises that he's been giving throughout Scripture. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 65, he says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Does that sound familiar? Of course. This is our, our verse 1. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. He says this in Isaiah chapter 65, this great prophetic book, and a portion of the book that de deals with the future. He says all the way back, seven, eight hundred years before Christ, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. Peter, in his chapter that deals with the end of the world, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, but according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So by making all things new, God is fulfilling promises that he made to his people throughout the centuries. Secondly, the new that God is doing has roots in the old. Now, we just picked that up in just the very definition of the word new, but verses 2 and 3 gives us more reason to understand that this is what God is doing. He says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm having some vocal problems. And I heard a loud voice. Where we go? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, 
and God himself will be with them as their God. I want you to think back about something. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's been said that when you look at the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, it is basically putting a bow, a completion, a, an exclamation point on the first three chapters of the Bible. In other words, the last three chapters of the Bible put the period to the first three chapters of the Bible. And this is what you see even right here. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, in chapter two of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are created and they are blessed by God. They're given new life, they're given a job, they're given a role to play in creation, but their greatest blessing happened every evening. What happened every evening? God would descend in the garden and in the cool of the garden, what did he do? He walked with them, he communed with them. The greatest sign of blessing for Adam and Eve and the position of honor that they had with their creator is that they literally were in the presence of God and they communed with him. And of course we understand that sin, what, what did sin do? Sin broke this blessing, they lost this communion with God, that presence of God. In fact, they're kicked out of the garden, never allowed to come again, and the, the relationship between God and his people changes. But the story of the Bible, church, is God more and more moving towards his people, reestablishing that level of close communion. You see this in the scripture. So uh, you fast forward many, <coughs> excuse me, many hundreds of years, and God delivers his people out of bondage in Egypt. And, and, and he's with them, how? By a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, and all the people of God are once again now more in the presence of God. And then he has them build a tabernacle and later a temple, and what does God do? He, he puts a portion of those structures aside, says these are the holy of holies, and God himself moves into those locations and the people could at least see the presence of God among them as the people of God, and they knew he was real. But those structures are destroyed, and so then God, he does something even more magnificent. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, walks among his people and fellowship is happening between his disciples and Jesus, God himself, until finally when he ascends to heaven, he says, I promise you something, I'm gonna send the comforter. God the Holy Spirit now does what lives inside of us and we commune with God because God now doesn't live in a temple made of, of bricks and mortars. He lives in the temple of our body because we've been bought with a price and we're his. But the story is not done there. In this passage, what we see is that ultimately God is going to renew this earth and he is going to renew that communion that humanity had with God so that for all of eternity, we are literally in the presence of our creator communing with him. And so the new that God is doing very much takes us back to our roots, to the old in Genesis chapters two, one and two. A third application. The results of God, the result of God's new or renewing work is an incredible future. Verse one says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
Now, some people have taken that literally, meaning that in the future, our new world is not going to have any oceans. Uh, I don't think that's quite what is going on here. Remember, it's apocalyptic. There's symbols throughout the book of Revelation. This passage is full of them. We have to understand that in the ancient world, the sea was the source uh, throughout the, I mean, going back for millennia, the sea was seen as the source of chaos, of demons, of evil, of sin itself, sin, death, all the horrendous things that we see happening on land were derived from things that were living in the sea. False gods lived in the sea. They came out of the sea and they brought oppression into this world. And so the sea was seen as the source of that which brings death and despair and sorrow. And so the point here is that all of our death, the sources of death and sorrow and despair, they're going to be eradicated, wiped out. And he makes it even more clear in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Sin, it broke our communion with God, but church, sin broke creation itself. Our world, our universe, the scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 8, all the degeneration that we see, the despair of our world and the universe, it's due to sin. Our original rebellion against God, our creator, has affected the entire universe. And so creation, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, looks to this new future as eagerly as we do. And between now and then, it groans, waiting for redemption. Sin, it broke creation. We live in a broken, fallen world, and daily we are reminded of this brokenness. We see it in living color on every news channel when we turn on the TV. But church sin did more than that. It broke creation. But specifically, sin broke you and me. It broke us. The consequences of this are felt by all of us. Sickness. Death pain, tears, wailing, sorrow, mourning, crying. This church is the symphony of humanity for thousands of years. But this verse tells us something. This verse tells us that God is writing a new symphony. And the music of his new symphony will not be sorrow and crying and wailing and tears. It will be joy and laughter and singing. That's the music of the new creation that he is bringing to us, this incredible future. Again, going back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 51. Those who have been transformed, or those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the result of God's new 
or renewing work is an incredible future for all of us. We're going to dig into this future in more detail, even more of these verses and this passage and others in the month of June as we look at our future glory. And we're going to unpack this more. But let me give you a final application to, that applies to all of us this morning from, from this passage specifically. God freely gives this new future to anyone who confesses their need and follows Jesus. In verse 6, we read, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We, we read those verses back in September. Do you remember what the, the, the context there? It's Jesus walking among his churches, saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who died and has lived again and has been resurrected, your Lord. And here we are at the end of the book reading the same words, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now listen to this announcement. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. How many of us, really all of us, we started our life with a deep thirst and a craving. A thirst and a craving that maybe we turn to other things in this world to satisfy to fill us. Perhaps it was our jobs, or it was money, or it was vice, or it was relationships, or it was entertainment and recreation, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, whatever it may be, we're born with this craving and this deep thirst. And what do we do? What does humanity do? It goes to great extremes to satisfy that thirst, and it never works. Why? You may be here this morning, and you right now feel empty. And you're here because you know there's something wrong in your life and you hope that things can be different and you have this emptiness, this craving, this thirst in your life. Why has it not been satisfied? Because we as human beings continually make the same mistake and sin. We look to the creation to fill the void that only the creator can fill. We look to the things that he has given to us and we elevate them to the level of Christ himself and we worship those things, even good things, and it leaves us thirsty. And this morning, if you're here and you have that deep thirst, that sense of emptiness and purposelessness of your life, understand what is being said right here. The beauty of this gospel promise is that anyone who confesses their sin and their need, their emptiness, their desire to be filled, to be satisfied, can turn to Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, and you will not be thirsty anymore. He fills you up. And if that wasn't good enough news, Here's what makes it great news. It's free. We like free, right? It's free to every one of us. In fact, we can't earn it. It's impossible for us to be good enough or to deserve this gift from Jesus Christ. It's free to every one of us because he paid the price. Wasn't free to Jesus. When he laid his body on that cross and he was tortured and he died for our sins, 
He paid the price so that we can have this free salvation, this water that will thirst, satisfy our thirst. In a few minutes, we're going to have an offering. We're going to be singing a song. We'll be standing during the offering. If you're here this morning and you say, I thirst. I'm thirsty, Jerry. I'm empty. There's something wrong on the inside. I crave and I can't be satisfied. Come see me. I'll be over here to my right, your left. Come and see me. Today can be the day where you drink from the waters of salvation and your thirst is satisfied. This verse, I mean, I mentioned in the very beginning of the message that verse 5, this joyous proclamation that God makes that he is creating all things new, this greatly affected the elders and the church leadership as we prayed and we were asking God to clarify the vision of our church for the future. Vision is all about the future, right? N not mission. It's different than mission. Our mission of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs is not the vision of our church. See, mission, as I said a few moments ago, describes what we are to be doing as a church. It's what God wants us to do as a church. Our vision is a clear picture of what the future will look like when we are accomplishing our mission. Think of it like this. If our mission is a compass that helps determine the direction that our church is supposed to go, our vision describes the destination. It describes the destination and it tells us whether we've arrived or not. Okay? That's the difference. Mission is a compass that helps determine the direction that our church is supposed to go. Vision is language. It's a picture that describes the destination, and it helps us to understand whether we're there or not. A good vision, right? It encourages us. It, it paints a picture of a better tomorrow for our church when we're looking at it within this context. We're about to have a presidential uh, cycle again. Man, why didn't the founders make it like every eight years, 10, 12 years? I don't know. But anyway, we're about to go through it again. The best candidates, the candidates that have the best chance at being elected, you know what they're going to have in common? They're going to put before the people of our nation a vision for the future that is compelling and in some way engages them at the emotional and intellectual level, and for that reason, they cast a vote unless they're just blind party hacks. <laughs> so how does this verse, right? How does this verse, this joyous proclamation of God that he's making all things new, how does this shape us and our church and help clarify our vision? Well, you remember 10 years ago when we were going through a similar phase in our church life, um, we took our vision and we simplified it. We wanted you to be able to walk around anywhere and be able to communicate our vision and not have to think about it too hard, right? And so we actually simplified it, brought it down to three words. You remember that? Uh, so give me those words. What were they? One more time. Very good. Very good, right? Well, let's start like that. Let's begin with something that is simple, hopefully a memory tool that all of us can remember. We'll, we'll, we'll say it a lot, and we'll, we'll, we'll drill it into your heads and all that, and you'll be able to do that, hopefully with a little bit more enthusiasm than what you just did with Worship Connect Impact. 
right? Here we go. Let's, let's read it together. Ready? All things new, 50 by our 50th. Well, that was better. Let's try it one more time. A little bit more enthusiasm. Ready? Here we go. All things new, 50 by our 50th. Okay. By the way, let's do this real quick. If you have a phone that can take pictures, take it out right now. Put it on picture mode. I want you to take pictures of the next few slides. Okay? Go ahead, get it out. Turn it on. Some of you have already had it on and you've been reading the internet and the news. I know, it's okay. All right, take a picture. Take a picture. All right. Good, good. Actually, let's do it again. Get this side. This is better. Okay? Okay? All right, no. All right. All things new, 50 by our 50th. I want you to take pictures of these slides because in your groups this week, I want you to think about it between now and then, and then I, we're going to have discussions and start talking about this and unpacking this more. All things new, 50 by our 50th. That's the, the short kind of memory clue. Now let me give you the full vision statement of our church. Okay? First time it's being revealed here in a public way like this. Here we go. Take your picture. There you go. Recognizing that we are a church of broken people being restored by the gospel of Jesus Christ. By our 50th anniversary in 2028, we will equip and motivate our church members to bring gospel restoration to at least one friend or neighbor, and we will help plant 50 new churches in our community and around the world. Okay, that's the full statement. Now, a lot of places have a statement, and it's like, remember I said a vision helps you to understand whether you've actually arrived at the destination or not. So we're not done yet. There's another slide, okay? This is our simple, this is basically a sentence of what our vision is, but how do we know that we've arrived? The vision will be successfully completed when 50 adult members lead someone to Christ and into discipleship. 50 of our children are led to Christ by their parents. 50 people have the brokenness of their life restored through our church, and 50 new churches are planted, with at least three to five of those churches being planted in our own backyard. Okay, let me go back to that again. 50 adult members lead someone to Christ and into discipleship. 50 of our children are led to Christ by their parents. Important phrase, right? 50 people have the brokenness of their lives restored through our church, our church's ministries, and 50 new churches. We help plant 50 new churches with at least three to five of these churches being planted in our own backyard. All right. That's a lot. Let me talk about it for a few minutes, just the few minutes that we have remaining. Go ahead and advance the slide and get that off of there. First of all, a few comments. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on this greatly because we don't have a lot of time left in the service this morning, but I do want to, to help give some clarity to this, maybe tell you what it is and what it isn't. The very first thing I want you to understand it is our vision imagines the Great Commission being fulfilled within our local ministry context. Our vision is centered on the Great Commission. Well, let me say it another way. A church that doesn't have the Great Commission at the heart, at the very center of its mission and of its vision, it is not a New Testament Bible-believing church. Can't say it any more clearly than that. 
A church that does not have the Great Commission at the center of its vision and at the heart of its mission is not a New Testament church. So our vision imagines what it will look like if the Great Commission is fulfilled within our current local context as a church with your gifts, with your makeup, with our passions in this city in which we're doing ministry. This is what it does. Secondly, and this is only saying, this is going to be a head scratcher, but hang with me. Our vision has obsolescence built into it. Our vision has obsolescence built into it. So in many respects, we're copying Apple and your iPhones, right? You know how they, they, they go, ultimately they die, right? You have, they, they build obsolescence into it, and you got to get a new iPhone at some point, and, and technology does this, and they're doing it for profit. Why have we built obsolescence into our vision? And what is that obsolescence? There is a ticking time clock in this vision. What is it? 10 years. We're 40 years old now, we'll be 50 in 2028. We're saying this is for 10 years, which means in about eight and a half years from now, we're gonna begin this whole process over again. Okay, go ahead on the count of three, groan. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, get it out of your system, right? I mean, some of you, this is the second time now in 10 years that you have been through, that you've been hearing this. It's like, we just heard this 10 years. I was just learning Worship Connect Impact. It took me 10 years to get three words, right? Why are we doing it again, Jerry? I mean, that was working pretty good for us. Because church, we have to understand that we are not the same church that we were 10 years ago. See, 10 years ago, the leadership of our church looked at our church and said, hey, we need to make some changes in our church. We need to change the culture of our church. We need to become a different kind of church. And making disciples who worship God passionately connect with his people and impact his kingdom helped turn the ship of our church. But we're a different church now than we were 10 years ago. And guess what? Palm Bay is a different city now than what it was 10 years ago. And so now we have to look and say, okay, we've changed the culture of our church. What does God want next? But how dumb would it be to say that Palm Bay and our church is going to be the same 15 years from now as it is right now? And so we are anticipating that we are going to have to reimagine what it will look like for us to bring the Great Commission into our community in 10 years. It's going to be different than the way we're doing it right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that means if you're here for you know, 10 more years, you will have been through this three more times, three times. So go ahead and groan again, go ahead. Oh, come on, I know you wanna, come on, go ahead and groan. But church, if we don't do this, here's what'll happen. We will calcify and be of no earthly good to Palm Bay. We'll become a, an inward facing country club that is doing church for the benefit of each other. And what will ultimately happen is we'll all become whiter headed and pretty soon we die. And so we have to continually examine and ask, how do we bring the gospel to our community? And that's the refreshment of a vision. Thirdly, our vision is a reflection of our core values and who we are as a church. The gospel's at the center of this vision. Living authentically with one another is at the center of this vision, right? Um, recognizing that all of us need the gospel, whether we are believers or unbelievers, is at the center of this vision. Fourthly, 
Our vision is married to our, our, our vision is married to our mission to bring gospel restoration to believers and unbelievers alike. Our mission sees a role for ministering to the saint and to those who need to become saints. Our vision has four very distinct details that provide clarity and encouragement. We gave you a list of four objectives that will help us know whether or not we have achieved the vision. We're going to unpack each of those in the month of May. Uh, We will speak to each of them. We will go to the scriptures to see why we decided on these four, and we'll explain them in the month of May. Sixthly, our vision requires even more intentionality and focus in our discipleship and care ministries. Our vision requires us as a church to retool how we do discipleship, to refine it, to become more intentional and focused, because much of this vision requires us as a church and church leadership to equip and train you to help carry out this vision. And so if we just say, here's our vision, and we don't give you the tools, parents, to lead your children to Christ, we won't see 50 of our children led to Christ, right? If we don't help you and encourage you and equip you to share your faith, we won't see 50 adults come to know Christ and enter into discipleship. You get where I'm going there? And so as a church, we have to become more intentional in these areas. Next, our vision, and this is important. Our vision believes that God wants us to build his kingdom for his glory. This vision is not about constructing new buildings, expanding covenant church, and creating a covenant fiefdom. We have absolutely, as leadership, we have no expectations that this vision means that in 10 years, we're going to be a megachurch, that we're going to have thousands of people blocking our doors. In fact, this vision, ultimately, the way it may out, we may be smaller. If we help plant five churches in our backyard, many of you may go and help start those churches. You may not be here in 10 years, but church, we are ambassadors for Christ, right? Ambassadors don't build their own kingdoms. Ambassadors represent their king and his kingdom, and all their work is done for the glory of their king, so that his kingdom will be strong and everlasting, and that's what we're about. So we have no expectations. This is not a church growth plan. This is a kingdom growth plan. That's what it is, because that's what we want to be about. And if God blesses us with different people and more people and different buildings and all, that's great, that's fine and dandy, but we don't need those things to carry this out. We can do this right here, this group of bodies of believers right here. God can do this through us. Finally, our vision, this vision, calls on all of us to sacrifice and embrace God's call on our lives as followers and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, I've kind of revealed this to various pastors, and they hear it, and their eyes get really big. And you know what they key in on? Helping plant 50 new churches in the next 10 years 
with three to five of those being in our own backyard. They understand that helping plant three to five churches in our own backyard, this is going to stretch us as a church. It's going to be difficult, all right? And their eyes get real big and they go, wow, that's awesome. I, gotta, I, I can't wait to see how that works out. That's hard. And I listen to them and I answer their questions and I talk about the infrastructure that we have in place to hopefully make this happen. And then when we all get done, I look at them, I say, but you've missed the point. That's not the hardest part of this vision. In fact, that's one of the easier objectives, in my opinion, of this vision. The hardest and most challenging aspect of this vision is the personal call on each and every one of us to bring what we have experienced through God's grace and gospel restoration and to bring that to someone else who is in need. And that church is the most challenging part of this vision, this part that by 2028, we will equip and motivate our church members to bring gospel restoration to at least one friend or neighbor. Think about that. Think about what would happen if we, just the folks who are here, this isn't all of our church because some of them came last week and they get a Sunday off apparently, right? But, no. but if you look at all of our, but just take our church right here. How will our church be different 10 years from now if every one of us were to simply embrace the call to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, who were intentional, and energetically looking for opportunities to bring gospel restoration to someone else's life. How will our church be different, be drastically different? How will our city and community be different? It will be drastically different. But this, make no mistake about it, it's the hardest part of our vision. God, give us the grace to be those people. We cannot do this on our own. Lord, some of, some of us need to begin to engage with this vision, perhaps by recognizing that it takes money to, to fulfill a vision. Others need to engage with it by getting involved in simple ministries of our church and letting their gifts be used to build the kingdom. But Father, every one of us in here, regardless of our level of involvement and support of this ministry right now, every one of us in here, Lord, this vision hits us between the eyes when we think about being your ambassadors who bring gospel restoration to at least one friend or family member or neighbor. Lord, that's, that could be very scary. It can be very intimidating. It, it, it stretches us, Lord. For some of us, we need people in our lives who are actually not Christians because our circle has become that small that is only Christians. So, Lord, every one of us here, just about that I can think of, probably we need your grace in this area. Lord, help us to be those kinds of ambassadors. We have 50 adults that we want to see come to know you, Lord Jesus, led to you by people who are in front of me right now or by myself. God, may we see that number just blown out of the water. May we look back in 10 years and say, what were we thinking to only make it 50? God, may it be much more than that. 
We want to do this, Lord, for your glory, for the love of our people that we know in this city who are lost. They're broken by sin. They need this water that will satisfy their thirst. And Lord, I pray for the one who may be here this morning who's thirsty, who's yet to drink of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who's turned, not yet turned to him. May even today be their day for salvation. In your name we pray, amen.